The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. As the world has changed dramatically in recent weeks, our jobs have changed too. If you're looking to explore the science of making sense of work in these trying times, you should check out Work Life with Adam Grant, a podcast from TED. This season, you'll learn how small wins can help you fight burnout, how you don't have to fight loneliness at work alone, and what veteran remote worker, aka retired astronaut, Scott Kelly does to build mental resilience. Listen to Work Life with Adam Grant wherever you get your podcasts. I know... I always do. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel. And this is Hello Monday, our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. Life can feel like a game of shoots and ladders. You're going along toward a goal and something great happens. You climb a ladder. Or something unexpected happens and you're down the chute. And these setbacks, they can really derail you. You get a divorce, you lose your job, There's a global pandemic that disrupts just everything about the way that you know how to live your life. And when this happens, you can feel pretty lost for a long time. But the process of getting through it, it's what forms our character, what makes us stronger. You could argue it's what gives our life meaning. Today's guest is Bruce Feiler. Bruce had a period in his own life about a decade ago. It was awful. He'll tell you about it. But as awful as it felt in the moment, it also shaped him. It taught him a lot about how to live. And once he'd made it through, he set out to figure out a formula for navigating these transitional moments we all face. Here's Bruce. I had what I now think of for the first half of my adult life, a linear life. Okay, I grew up in South Georgia. I went to the Northeast for college. I moved to Japan. And I discovered early in my life what I wanted to do. I did it for no money for a long time. Then I had some success. And then in my 40s, I had a back-to-back-to-back set of disruptive life experiences, shoots in your analogy. First, as you know, a dozen years ago, I was diagnosed with a rare aggressive form of bone cancer in my left leg. I was a new father. This was a crisis by any measure. That was the same year as the Great Recession and my family The family I grew up in is in the real estate business. We were hit very hard. And then my father, who at the time was about 10 years into fighting Parkinson's, got very depressed. Parkinson's is disease of the dopamine. It affects your movement, but we now know your mood. And he tried to kill himself six times in 12 weeks. Any of those crises uh, would be a significant life-turning event. And to put all three of them into the same year, Bruce, I mean, it just seems to me like there's this one edict to life, which is that it's just not fair and things don't space themselves out gently over the course of our lives. But in fact, they often bundle and do so disproportionately on some people's shoulders. Um, What was that period like for you at that point? I was overwhelmed. I was scared. I was angry. I was confused. I was stuck. But it also was a familiar period. And for me, you know, my whole life, a a crisis is an excuse to tell a story, right? To go back and think about your story. And so that being kind of a narrative guy, being a meaning guy, that's what I did. And so 
on a Monday morning with my dad, I decided to, on a whim, to email him a question about his life. Tell me about the toys you played with as a kid. My father, you have to understand, couldn't even move his fingers at this time. He thought about his answer. He dictated it to Siri, who then spit out an answer, and it was like a page or two. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is working. This is the first thing that worked. I'll send him another, and then another, and another. And this went on for five years, every Monday morning, a question. Tell me about the house that you grew up in. How'd you become an Eagle Scout? How'd you join the Navy? How'd you meet mom? And basically, this man who'd never written anything longer than a memo backed into writing an autobiography. And it was the most powerful transformation any of us had seen And what it did for me was it kind of plunged me into this world of narrative psychology, right? And it turns out that there's all this research about how story in times of crisis can help us rethink and rewrite who we are, narrative gerontology, narrative adolescence, narrative career. And so I got very interested in how our minds deal with kind of plot disruptions, right, or breaches, or, you know, and that is what a story is in a fundamental way. And when I started telling this story to everyone that I knew, everybody had their own story, like their own shoot they had just gone down. My wife went into the hospital and died the next day. My daughter tried to kill herself. My boss is a crook. I'm being sued for malpractice, whatever. I heard story after story. And I then basically, I said to my wife, Linda, one day, Like, no one knows how to tell their story anymore. And I got to figure out what I can do to help. And that's what set me on this journey of crossing the country, all 50 states, gathering hundreds of life stories and trying to figure out, are there patterns that can help all of us when we go through a crisis? You know, Bruce, I just want to stop and punctuate this idea of the importance of the story and how significant the way that we tell the stories of our lives is to our identity, to, to what we believe about who we are. And that really underpins your your whole philosophy as you take this on, right? Well, we'll stop for a second and listen to that story going on in your head, right? It's the story about where you came from, where you're going to, like what's important to you, what is of value to you. That story, what do you think about when the phone rings at an unusual time of day, right? Or you rush to the hospital, like what is that story? And what we now know is that story, that story of your life It is not part of you. Like, it is you in a fundamental way. Like, this life is the story that you tell yourself. And that's been kind of building for a time. But what we don't talk about is what happens when the story goes wrong. Like, then how do you get it back? How do you get it back on track? That turned out to be, and let's just be clear about this, like, that's not what I set out to do. I set out to talk to people about their life stories, high points, low points, turning points, and what I quickly realized is that everybody goes through these breaches, these shoots, as you know, I call them in my book, life quakes. And what happens when we go through a life quake? Fundamentally, the act of getting unstuck, of getting back on track, of going through the transitions of our lives, that's fundamentally what it means to be alive. Mm-hmm. Um this idea of a life quake, uh, it really resonates uh, because it, it seems like I, these events, more often they're, they're challenges. We lose a child, God forbid. We have a divorce. We lose a job. And of course, um, many of our listeners have undergone a lot of these types of challenges at the same time, even as collectively we've all had to learn how to navigate life under quarantine. What can you share with us about how we come through these with the least amount of pain possible? Because pain is so uncomfortable, but maybe the pain is useful. 
How do we come through these gracefully? I'll start at the end and I'll go back to the beginning. Transitions are essential to life, right? We think of these periods as painful, uncomfortable, unpleasant, as periods we have to kind of grit or grind our way through. But in fact, the greatest periods of growth are in these periods of dislocation and disconnection and reinvention. So that's the end. These are essential to being alive and they work in a fundamental way. But to go back in the story that we've been talking about, so what I did was I, I crossed the country and I gathered all these stories. I had a thousand hours of interviews. I then got a team of 12 people. We analyzed and decoded them for a year. And the big headline that emerged from this is that the linear life, the life that I had been living, <laughs> the life that we all expect, that that is dead. The idea that we're going to have one job, one relationship, one home, one sexuality, one spirituality, one source of happiness, like that's debt. It has been replaced by, by what I am calling in this book the nonlinear life. And the nonlinear life involves many more of these transitions. My data show that we go through th three dozen around disruptors in our lives. It could be something like an accident. It could be an injury. It could be a job change, a job elevation. It could be getting married, having a child, having a child leave. Most of those we get through relatively quickly. We, we, we have a little uncomfortableness, we rally, our friends rally around us, we reboot and we keep moving forward. But one in 10 of those, three to five times in our lifetime becomes a huge, massive disorienting event. And the average time it takes us to get through this is five years, okay? And most of us get through them, but they are these long processes. And that leads to a life transition. This is an ideal life transition that is out of academic favor. It's not something that we talk about a lot. And yet it is precisely the human mechanism for getting unstuck. Why do you think it's out of academic favor? The idea of life transitions was invented, if you will, about 100 years ago at the origin of Western psychology. I've German academic named Arnold van Gennep, who invented the idea of, of, of rites of passage, named rites of passage. He first identified these as important life events and said there are three stages to them. And that idea has more or less held for 100 years. It was kind of revitalized in the 60s, more or less 50 years after it had been invented, it was extremely popular in the 70s. Gail Sheehy, as you know, published this book, Passages, which said we all, everyone does the same thing in their 20s. Same thing in their 30s. Everyone has the idea of a midlife crisis. There was a big period of change in the 70s as divorce became more popular. Women entered the workplace. There was a whole kind of series of change, and people talked about this a lot. And then it went underground, more or less, for the last 50 years. And I think that it's coming back because the pace of change is quickening. And I think that one undeniable consequence of the pandemic is that it's going to quicken even more. Every conversation that I have, at least, is about Am I in the right job? Do I want to move? Am I in the right relationship? Is what I'm doing meaningful enough? Am I giving back enough? I think that people are sort of reevaluating what gives them identity. And so I think that we are heading into a period where transitions are going to become more urgent and the skills to navigate them are going to become like the dominant human skill of the moment. You know, Bruce, it seems like there are transitions like the ones you just mentioned, um, which might feel immediate and necessary, but you have agency in them. You Maybe you decide to choose a new job. You decide to leave your marriage. And then there are a whole set of transitions that you perceive yourself to have no agency in, like your early cancer diagnosis when you had adorable toddler twin girls at home. 
Is the way that we approach these different depending on whether we feel like we have agency? The short answer surprised me, and it was no. We coded for this question of voluntary versus involuntary. 53% of the life quakes that we experience are involuntary. You get a cancer diagnosis. You are fired. Uh, your spouse cheats on you. 47% were voluntary. You cheat on your spouse. You choose to change religions. You decide to start a business or, or, or step away to spend more time with your family, whatever it might be. I'm a kind of tail end boomer, and I had all these millennials working for me. And when that data point came out, it was fascinating because my reaction was, uh, was wow, 47% of these are, are ch changes that we choose. And the millennials around me were, whoa, 53% are things that we don't control. Um, so that was kind of very interesting. And actually, by the way, kind of a sub-interesting dimension to all this is that these ideas that nonlinearity involves more life transitions, that idea, Xers get it inherently and intuitively more naturally than boomers do and millennials even more than Xers do, right? Millennials fundamentally understand they're going to go through 12.7 jobs and have 11.4 moves and reinvent themselves three times. I mean, the average 15-year-old today is going to have a job that hasn't even been invented yet. So younger people understand that the pace of change is quickening. But to your question, I would say the biggest single change that I went through in this process is that I would have expected, if you go back to my definitional moment, right, I got cancer, I got economic problems, am I going to go bankrupt, right, and I have a family crisis, I would have thought that the toolkit for navigating cancer and financial worries and a psychological crisis in my family would have been different. I was wrong, that the tools are fundamentally similar. And that became sort of my obsession. How can I identify what these tools are? How can I understand them in a clear way so that to the kind of heart of what we're really talking about here, how can I help people go through them more effectively? And so what did you learn about that? The first thing that I learned is that when we go through them, we feel we're alone. No one has gone through this. <laughs> and I'm never going to get to the other side. When you sit hour after hour, day after day, month after month, as I did, and talk to people about them, very clear patterns emerge. My wife likes to joke that I have hard knowledge about soft things. So the first thing I want to say is there is a very clear structure to them, that there are three stages to life transitions. The first stage is what I call the long goodbye. That's in which you have to confront the emotions that you're going through. And in some ways, you have to ritualize the change, kind of say goodbye, maybe even go so far as to mourn, gather mementos from the life that you're leaving behind. The next stage is what I call the messy middle. And in that stage, you are shedding certain habits. They may be money. They may be status. They may be weight. They may be people-pleasing. They may be rituals that you're – maybe you're, you're – transitioning religions and you have to leave certain customs behind, but you have to shed certain habits. But then what happens is this astonishing period of creativity where you try out new habits. What do we see? What wasn't the first thing that we saw during the pandemic was baking, right? That didn't shock me in the least. People work with their hands, they turn to creativity. And then the last phase is the new beginning where you begin to again mark a ritual that you're coming out of it. You begin to share. So here are the thing. There are these three phases that we've been talking about, the long goodbye, the messy middle, the new beginning. Each one has kind of sub-tools sub that you can utilize. P 
people do them out of order, just as life is nonlinear, transitions are nonlinear. We all have a transition superpower and a transition kryptonite in which people do them out of order in their own idiosyncratic fingerprint of their own life transition, but they do work and everybody can get better at them. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were FinTech developers. We'd been a FinTech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a FinTech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Well, you know, the significance of having an idea of the process of a transition, as I listen to you, it feels like it, it empowers us to live with the unknown and know that we'll be okay. Right? Five years is a lot of time. If you told me the last time I had a significant transition um, that it would take five years to be okay. But you also assured me that I would be okay. Then I'd be a lot more comfortable sitting in all of that murky middle. I think that I have three things to say about that. I would say, number one, transitions are a choice. The life quake itself, the blunt force on your life, may be voluntary or involuntary. Almost assuredly, in either case, no matter what is the cause, you're going to feel stuck. You're going to feel dread. You're going to feel fear was the number one emotion. You're going to feel sadness at what you're leaving behind. You're going to feel ashamed in a lot of cases. I lost a job. My marriage failed. You're going to feel all of these things. The transition is the process of getting through it, and transitions are a choice. You have to leave the frozen period and move into the part where you are going to try to get through it. And once you make that choice, you're on your way. So lesson number one, transitions are a choice. Lesson number two, transitions are essential. These are the periods of growth and renewal and rebirth and revitalizations. They are the parts of life where we get better. And third, to your question, transitions work. The question that we've been kind of touching around, which is how long they take. I asked everyone, how long did your transition take? The most common answer and the average answer was five years. Small number of people said one to two. A couple of people said three or four. Most people said four, five, or six. And only about fewer than 10% of the people said, it took longer. I'm not really through it. It never really ended. So 90 
plus percent of the people said that it did end, that it did work, that they got out of it. So my, my, the way I think about this is transitions take longer than you expect, but not longer than you need. Transitions work. It feels to me like so much of, of what you're exploring here is what gives our lives meaning. Has your own thought on that changed over the course of your research? I think to answer your question, let's go back to the very beginning of what we were talking about, which is the importance of story, like our own life story in our heads. We don't actually know that much about what is it that makes a story. And after a century of thinking about narrative structure, we know it's two objects that are somehow connected, right? A snowball is not a story. A bloody nose is not a story. The connection between the snowball and the bloody nose is a story, right? Or a, a mother comes upon a child with a bloody nose and a snowball. Now we really got a story, right? But the one thing that we know about stories is stories do not have inherent meanings. We have to give the story the meaning. And the same thing applies to our lives. And so what I've come to see is that the backbone of identity, of meaning, is what I call the ABCs of meaning. There are three pillars as our lives are swerving everywhere that we can use to control the meaning of our lives. The A, we've talked about this, the A is agency. That's doing, acting, building, making, our ability to feel like we have some impact on the world. The B is belonging. That's our relationships, our community, our colleagues, our neighbors, um, our, you know, our friends. And the C is a cause. Okay, that's a calling, a purpose, something bigger than ourselves. I think of these ABCs as your me story, your we story, and your the story. And so what I've come to think is that we all have all three of these uh, sources of meaning in our lives. And what happens in a life quake is that we rebalance them. So what I would say to people now is one thing that we can do that will give us a sense of agency and belonging and cause is to revisit what are the principal sources of meaning in our lives, double and triple check ourselves. We've all been given this opportunity, whether we want it or not. Let's don't miss the opportunity to revisit what gives us meaning, rebalance them, and that will set us off much better for, for where we're going to go forward from here. We began our conversation by talking about this very intense period in your life a number of years ago now. Um, so you, by your own measure, could be through that transition that came from that. Um, how are you right now? I think like a lot of people, I'm scared. I'm sad for what we've left behind. I'm particularly aware that my now teenage daughters are, have had this huge, massive experience in their lives that's a shock to them and the comfort that they knew in the world. I'm somewhat pleased it's going to give them some calluses, and I think that's what relates to all of us. If you think back to where we started this conversation, Jesse, we were talking about a story, and we were talking about the idea that we think of our lives as going straight to the end, but then being disrupted and interrupted by shoots. We think of our lives as fairy tales, and I spend a lot of time thinking about fairy tales while working on this story, and what I came to realize is that every fairy tale has the same element, which is a wolf appears, or a dragon, or a troll, or a monster. And while originally we think that that figure, that wolf, if you will, is going to ruin the story, that's what brings out the heroic qualities in the hero, right? You take out the wolf, you take out the hero. And if there's one thing I learned, it's that we need to be the hero of our own stories. And so what I personally feel 
right now to answer your question is I'm aware of all of the emotion and the fear and the dread and the feeling of being stuck, the sort of existential crisis that we're in. And what I personally feel is I got a lot more tools to fight that wolf than I ever would have had at the beginning. Like that this was essentially a factory for me of making me appreciate all the abject human miseries I haven't experienced, because <laughs> I heard a lot, at least for now. But it gave me the confidence that when that wolf shows up in my life, that I can, that I can go at it, that I can defeat it, that I can get around it or through it or over it or under it or whatever technique I end up using, and that I can get to the other side. You know, and to me, what you what I what you what I feel at the very end of this is okay, I got through it, I defeated the wolves, my fairy tale's intact, and that what do I want to do? I want to go back to the beginning and use this moment as to do the most human thing possible, which is to start another story. Like that's what you do at the end. You say once upon a time and you start all over again. I mean, we have to end right there. That was beautiful. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Bruce, thank you so much for sharing that with us. That was Bruce Feiler. His new book is Life is in the Transitions, Mastering Change at Any Age. I often ask what you all want to hear on the show, and listeners write in with great ideas, like this one from Amy in Arlington, Virginia. She suggests we work on an episode about going back to work. She was just preparing to go back on a staggered schedule, so her colleagues were divided into four groups, and each group would go in for a week on a rotation. Amy writes, I know a lot of people are anxious about going back, which leads to a whole host of other issues, such as the value of being at an office with a small number of colleagues, and being around people who are so anxious to be at work. Amy, I agree. It's true. Going back is just so loaded. There's how we do it. There's how we feel about it. And at Hello Monday, we're thinking about both. We are working on an episode. If you've got thoughts on this, write us at hellomonday at linkedin.com or come to our office hours this week and let's talk about it. Our producer, Sarah Storm, and I go live from my LinkedIn profile every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's our coffee break. So grab your mug and join us on my LinkedIn profile to talk about going back to work, whatever that looks like for you. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Sarah Storm with help from Madison Schaefer. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Maya Mangini, Victoria Taylor, and Juliette Perot are the heart of our we story. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And you also heard music from Poddington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. See you next Monday. Thanks for listening. We're going to climb some ladders, but we're going to hit some shoots. <laughs> and what this is is sort of a shoot training expedition. That's really what life is because that's yeah. what the story we tell ourselves is. Well, it's funny, Bruce. I mean, I think um, yes, obviously long-term he'll have a lot of shoots, but while, while Francis and I have experienced this period as incredibly intense and difficult. I think June's basically like, great. My moms are home yeah, all yeah. day, every day. 